I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. Florida reported another daily high in coronavirus cases, one of 27 states where the infection rate is going up. In Florida, the infection rate is above 10 percent, and anyone traveling from Florida or any other state where the infection rate is that high is, as of now, subject to a 14-day quarantine if they come to New York, New Jersey, or Connecticut. We're announcing today uh, a joint travel advisory. People coming in from states that have a high infection rate must quarantine for 14 days. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo made the announcement of the new quarantine jointly with the governors of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, and New Jersey, Phil Murphy. It's a really smart, common sense step, uh, particularly uh, as we have the, the three states have really broken the back of this virus. Utah is not one of the states now subject to the quarantine in the tri-state region, but it is one of the 27 states in the country where the infection rate has been going up. Tom Yudako joins us from the Utah State Health Department. Yeah, we started to see a pretty significant increase in, in our daily caseload growth starting on about May 28th. And it really hasn't slowed down since that point. We're uh, going on almost four weeks now of, of daily caseload growth that is significantly higher than we were experiencing during the months of March, uh, April, and May. How worrying is this? Well, it's it's definitely worrying. You know, we're, we're at a point where We've started to reopen society. People are out and about, and undoubtedly, that's why we're experiencing this this increase in cases, and we knew that would happen. What we want to impress upon people is that it's really up to everybody to do their part to start reversing this trend. We need people to wear masks when they're in public. We need people to, to be physically distant from one another when they're in public. It's really a trend that we feel like we can turn around, but we've got to have people in the public doing their part taking responsibility, looking out for one another, and recognizing that, that their personal behaviors can affect what's happening. Are you noticing a lot of non-compliance in the state? Is that part of the problem? You know, it's it's really interesting. You you, you go to certain grocery stores in certain parts of town, and uh, you see the majority of people wearing masks. You go to other parts of town, and, and people wearing masks are in the minority. So uh, not exactly clear why exactly certain people do or do not uh, choose to wear masks, but Really what we want to impress upon people is that, you know, when you wear a mask, it's a a sign of respect for the people around you. It's a sign that that you care about the health and the well-being of others. It's not a sign of weakness. Uh, It's a a sign of strength and it's a sign of of helping out your, you know, your your fellow community members. What kind of cases are you seeing? What kind of severity? So we have maintained about 8% of our positive cases will ultimately be hospitalized and and around 1% of our total cases will unfortunately uh, ultimately die from the infection. Uh, those numbers have held true throughout the pandemic. So one of the most concerning things about our increase in cases is that we know that in about 7 to 10 days from experiencing a significant spike in positive cases, that about 8% of those individuals are going to be sick enough that they need to seek out care in a hospital. And what we want to be able to do is maintain that hospital capacity so that the sickest of the sick in our state can can continue to access the care that they need. Are hospitals on the brink? Hospitals aren't on the brink. We have uh, we've seen that uh, our ICU capacity has hovered anywhere between 58 and 62, 63 uh, percent. Our overall hospital bed capacity is, has been anywhere from 48 to 52 percent. But certainly, if as you start to look at four, five, six hundred cases a day and and figure that eight percent of those people are going to be hospitalized. We could be in a in a situation here pretty quickly where 
we're seeing several hundred additional people hospitalized each week. Utah, along with Massachusetts, was among the first states to really implement a contact tracing program and, and the kind of robust contact tracing program that public health experts said was necessary to contain the spread of coronavirus. So what's going on? How do you account for the surge? Well, I, I mean, the surge is, is, can certainly be accounted for by uh, people resuming their you know, somewhat normal daily activities, going back out into society, going out into the workplace and interacting more with, with other members of the community. It has stressed our contact tracers. Certainly when you're contact tracing 100 to 200 new cases a day, that's a lot easier than contact tracing four, five, 600 new cases a day. Not only that, in the, in the early months of, of our outbreak, we were seeing that each positive case had about five contacts that we had to follow up with. Now what we're seeing is that each positive case has upwards of 20, 25 contacts. So not only are we, are we tracing more positive cases, we're finding more and more contacts of each one of those cases. What's the prognosis uh, in the weeks ahead, Tom? Well, we, we expect that we will continue to see increased cases. What we're really looking for is, is to see a plateau followed by a drop. We haven't seen that yet. Uh, we're hoping to see that. And, in, and until we can get people on board with the message of wearing masks and, and social distancing and staying home when they're sick, uh, we will likely continue to see this type of an increase. Tom Udako, our thanks to you. He's from the Utah State Health Department. Major League Baseball has announced a 60-game season beginning next month, the game's shortest season in more than a century. Play ball is the cry baseball fans have longed to hear this summer, but that same cry is anything but music to the ears of some doctors. Dr. Robert Glatter is an ER physician here in New York City. So, Dr. Glatter, baseball says they can play safely without fans, with masks in the dugout, and with a ban on pitchers licking their fingers for moisture before throwing. Is this a good idea? I think we have to be very careful. Um, I think that, you know, seeing what happened with Djokovic recently, even though that's tennis, I think we have to be really aware of the risk of transmission. Major League Baseball, in and of itself, might be a bit safer uh, than tennis, but I think that, you know, knowing that what happened with Djokovic, we have to really learn the lessons. And that means that, you know, distancing protocols are, are very important. MLB faces a lot of issues. Um, we know that there are already players that have tested positive in training camps. Let's face it, no sport itself is completely safe, even taking these precautions. Um, in my mind, I think, you know, the best search situation would be really sitting out this season. I know it sounds a bit drastic, but, you know, look, we want everyone to be safe. We want players, coaches, fans. We want everyone to really come out of this in the safest way possible. Baseball says there will be a designated hitter in the National League, and that's one of the nods to safety. Is that going to be enough? Uh, it may not be, uh, but I think it's a step you know, towards safety and protection. And I think that, you know, it's, again, it's, it's prolonged contact. It's the idea that you know, the longer you stay out there, your risk of exposure increases. And we know that um, droplets, aerosolized droplets, even from just normal speaking and talking, can stay in the air for about up to 8 to 15 minutes. So knowing this, um, you know, we have to be exceedingly careful. I think that going forward with every league, certainly the physicians involved, the managers have to really conference and understand that these risks are real. I think it's, it's really a, like sort of a, uh, you know, a, a day-by-day thing. If we start to see infection rates start to you know, go up, we're going to have to really scale back. I think fans are hungry for sports, players are. 
But the message is we got to do it safely. Does it matter that baseball is played outdoors, you know, unlike hockey or basketball, that, that everyone's in the sunshine, which seems to be a natural disinfectant? It does. It makes a big difference. The risk of transmission goes down significantly. We know this, but still there is risk, um, and there's you know, certainly risk of contact. When we look at runners, uh, there's something called a slipstream. That's sort of um, you know, the air uh, in terms of aerodynamics that trails right behind them. We know that this area is actually uh, an area at risk if people walk in the slipstream when people run or people have um, you know, been engaged in physical activity. So I think that's something that all sports leagues need to keep in mind. That said, soccer we know is a bit safer than, say, indoor basketball because of you know, the risks indoors. But even with football, you know, the, the line of scrimmage is, is concerning because of the heavy breathing, talking, you know, the contact. Uh, so that we can't ignore these risks, and I think it's going to have to be, you know, uh, sort of a uh, sort of what we see happen day to day that really makes us, uh, you know, look at protocols and make amends. What about other sports? Do the same precautions you're talking about and, and the same thoughts for not playing that you suggest apply to, to every other sport as well? I think it's, you know, every sport has to look at its risk. Tennis, in theory, has a little bit lower risk, or uh, you know, a significantly lower risk than. You know, basketball played indoors. But again, it, it comes down to looking at rates of infection because these players are going to be in a bubble. They're going to be tested daily, isolated from friends and family when they're going through the games. So I think really data and science are going to drive, you know, the effects of, of what we're seeing. And it's an experiment at best. Dr. Robert Glatter, our thanks to you. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to TJ Holmes. Thanks, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. Much more attention now being paid. Right, so much attention was on New York for a while, right. us trying to get out of this thing. Yep. Now so many other states seem to be right in the middle of it. And we're starting to hear this thing again. Give it another look at super spreaders. That's right. What are we talking about? Well, I think we're going to be hearing that term a lot. Uh, right. We're hearing it in the tennis world. We're hearing it all mm. over the place. And I think it, it requires a closer look. So first of all, the definition. This is when one infected person infects a disproportionate number of others. Um, we've seen this in this country uh, early on in the pandemic with a Boston Medical Conference. We've seen it in Georgia. We've seen it in a choir in Washington, in Arkansas. These are events that have resulted in a disproportionate number of subsequent infected cases. But we've also seen this in other infectious diseases. It happens with bacterial infections like tuberculosis and other viruses like measles and Ebola. But we are watching for signs of that very closely in what's going on right now with COVID. But can they be having these super spreaders, you say disproportionate, but can they be having an impact on how this thing is really spreading? Well, we're putting some numbers to that. And a lot of it is coming out of the CDC data that they're now tracking, just like they used to track influenza cases week by week. And here's what the CDC is thinking. At this point, it is suspected that between 10 to 20 percent of infected people go on to cause 80 percent of the spread of this virus. Um, This is the thought is that it's likely due to circumstances and environment, meaning these big pool parties, these conventions, et cetera, rather than something intrinsic in the biology or the virology of those people who are infected with the with the coronavirus. And the CDC is estimating that approximately 40 percent of transmissions are occurring before someone actually has symptoms. That's what's making it so challenging, TJ, to actually get a grip on this. Okay, and that can help us explain a lot. But what else 
uh, do we need to figure out right well, now? Well, you're right. It can help us explain things in retrospect, yeah. looking backwards. But the key in trying to control this virus is to be able to use this information and look forward. So first, we need to figure out really why some people are these so-called super spreaders, what differentiates them from others, and then how to identify them early or in advance so that we can stop it. Remember, in medicine and science, the first step is observation. But then you have to use what you've observed to try and affect a change. And we're not there yet with super spreaders. All right, Dr. Ashton here with us, of course, the entire hour. We'll check in with you here shortly. Do want to turn now to what we saw on Monday. California, Texas, and Idaho saw record daily highs in new COVID-19 cases, with Idaho confirming 242 new positive tests. That's state's highest daily increase since April. Here now with us, the governor of Idaho, Governor Brad Little. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. And you have actually the Boise area your most populous area, actually took a step back just this morning, had to regress in terms of reopening, and some things are having to close again because of the cases. Sir, what happened there? Well, we're trying to stay ahead of this. And we, as most of the states, we had a call, the governors did with the vice president Monday, and most of the states, it's among our young population. We've got lots of hospital capacity. Uh, We're one of only two states without any uh, any infection at all in our incarcerated population. Our long-term care facilities were in the top 10%. Uh, we're getting our arms around it. But that young population, we've got 100% of all businesses open, and we're just seeing a lot of spread as a result of the bars being open, to be real blunt about it. Uh, so you are specifically, yes, bars as of this morning have to shut down. But what are your criteria for going backwards? It, it seems as if, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Like you said, young people are starting to show up. So where are the young people? They're in the bars. Let's keep them out of the bars. Is that the strategy? Well, we we were one of the first states to have a four stage opening plan. And in fact, um, Saturday will be uh, stage four. And I'm meeting with my epidemiologist today about uh, what do we do about going into stage four Uh, in one local area in in the capital city, uh, Boise, here in Ada County. And they've they put some restrictions on that they didn't have before, mainly addressing uh, the bars. And it's not all the bars. Uh, some of the bars are keeping people spread. They're doing the physical distancing. Uh, they've got a higher level of of, uh, of sanitation in those areas. Uh, so we we can manage this, um, but but we can't delay these these things happen very fast. And because we've got plenty of ICU capacity, because we don't have problems in our corrections and our long-term care facilities, but if you get that spread uh, going uh, out of control, then you got a problem, and that's why we're taking action. So it, it sounds like uh, you do not see a wider second shutdown for the state necessarily in the works for you guys. Well, we've got 44 counties in Idaho, and, and nine of them, we have no confirmed cases so because you've got a problem in one area, uh, we shouldn't have to penalize those other areas. I put uh, some statewide criteria in place because we didn't have enough hospital capacity. We we're worried about it. Now, with working with our federal partners, we've got enough uh, PPE, uh, personal protection equipment. We've increased hospital capacity. Uh, we just know a lot more. We've done a lot more uh, testing, a lot more tracing. We're ramping all that up. So our ability to handle it is much better than it was 100 days ago. All right, Governor Little, I assure you, uh, us here and 
people all over the country certainly rooting for you as we see your, your cases go up. We certainly went through it here in New York, so we're hoping you all get things under control and the, the spread slows down there. But Governor Little, thank you so much. Good luck to you, State. Thank, thank you. Stay safe. Well, as states continue with phased reopenings, a big question is how colleges and universities will welcome back students and adjust to life as we now know it. Here to give us the latest on his school's plan for the fall is University of Michigan President Dr. Mark Schlissel. Sir, thank you so much for being here. Let's start with the news, though, that we just got from you all. You were supposed to host a presidential debate this fall. Decided that's not a good idea. Why? Well, I have to put it, TJ, in the context of you know, the question you queued up earlier, is getting kids back to school. Uh, and in order to conduct a semester safely at a university our size, you could imagine the logistical challenges of uh, social distancing and masks and hand washing and diminishing travel in and out of our community. And as we looked at the challenges of being able to fulfill our mission, our commitment to our students, we decided that the added challenge of hosting a presidential debate with thousands of people converging on Ann Arbor Uh, over the course of several days in the middle of a semester uh, would have exceeded our capacity to keep everybody safe. uh, And therefore, we pulled back. And I know you're going to have a lot of safety measures in place for the fall for students. They're going to have options for doing uh, some of it in person, some of it online still, the distance learning, remote learning. Uh, Some of the larger classes are going to be smaller. I believe going to have an area you can quarantine if someone gets sick. But with all that said, to your point, Why was it important still to go ahead and reopen this fall? So that's such a key question, TJ, that a lot of people are ignoring. Uh, For me, I'm a lifelong educator, and I can certainly tell you that in-person teaching often is far superior to what we can do online. And there are some subsets in our community that there's data suggesting they don't either have access to broadband or they don't learn as well online. Uh, So uh, we want to be able to serve all our students. There are some classes that can only be taught in person, uh, lab courses, studio courses, uh, arts instruction courses. Uh, And then also the out-of-classroom experience at a university like ours is where a lot of the learning takes place as well. We we call that the co-curriculum, the opportunity to join and lead clubs and fraternities and sororities, other student organizations. Uh, just to mingle and learn from people that come from all different parts of the country uh, going through their you know, transformative experience of being college students together. So there's a lot more than just delivering content online. Uh, that's the value added of an in-person education. What do you the do? Thing, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to jump the other, in. To the... I just wanted to Go ahead. make Go ahead. one other point, TJ. Is this pandemic's going to be with us for a while? Okay. Uh, So, you know, even the most optimistic thinking of a vaccine being available early in the new year, think of the logistical challenge of administering two doses of a vaccine to 300 million or more people. So it'll be at least the full academic year that COVID-19 will remain a threat. Uh, I think we have it under good enough control in many parts of the country, including Michigan, to figure out how to live with this thing and go on with our lives and balance what uh, the risks that will uh, students face at home with the risks that they're going to face here on campus. Dr. Schlissel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, TJ. Be healthy. All right. Well, up next right here on What You Need to Know, meet the young changemaker in our series spotlight, what she means when she says no justice, no peace. Stay here. Dr. Ashton has some answers to your questions about COVID-19 now. The first one up here, cognitive impairments. 
doctors have seen in long-haul patients. What are we talking about here? Well, you know, we, we're starting to see, TJ, the long-term effects, not just the short-term complications of patients who have had COVID-19. And one of them is psychological, neurological, and under that umbrella, there's cognitive impairment in some cases. So we don't know yet whether these things will persist three months out, six months out, one year out. But even at the month mark, there have been reports of people having difficulty thinking with memory, short-term memory, um, in some cases forgetfulness. And then it segues into the psychological and psychiatric anxiety, depression. So we don't understand why this is happening. But remember, this virus is just about six months old. So we need long-term follow-up on these patients. Um, anyone listening that is thinking that they might be suffering from those things, be in touch with your doctor. Um, but again, give yourself time. We've never dealt with this virus before, so we don't know how long full recovery can take. All right, next question here. Air purifiers, can they kill the virus in the air? Questionable. Okay, um, here's what we know on this issue. First of all, there's a lot of aggressive marketing that this air purifier can kill coronavirus. We don't know that yet. Okay, um, there is a good write up in Consumer Reports, which kind of dives down into a little bit more of the specifics on this. But in general, it appears that there may be some utility in air purifiers if you're in a home with someone who's sick with COVID. Okay, so that's different than really prevention. Um, there's a suggestion that air purifiers can help filter out uh, the influenza virus, measles from the air. So there's a potential that it could have some utility against uh, coronavirus. So can opening windows, by the way. Um, <laughs> but it really focuses on those HEPA filters, which can block out 99.97% of particles in the air. But again, where the purifier is, what other circulation, how high the viral load is, these are all elements that we don't know yet. All right. One more here. Ultraviolet lamps. We've been talking about these a little bit, right, Doc? Yep. Uh, are they as effective as traditional antibacterial cleaners at killing the virus. Okay, so now you're talking about killing the virus on surfaces, which remember, according to the latest um, issuance by the CDC, surface contact, that fomite transmission of these viral particles, not thought to be the major route of spread. However, we do use UV lights in operating rooms. It's commonly used in restaurants. You know, we turn them on at night and kind of kill all the um, germs that are on surfaces, but they're not all created equally. You can't expose your skin to it. So, again, with caution, we're learning more, and we don't know whether they're as effective as surface cleaning. So still a lot to know about this. <laughs> okay. Dr. Asher, thank you, you so bet. much. Well, of course, you can continue to submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. We're going to turn now to the more than 45 million Americans who filed for unemployment during the coronavirus pandemic. But less than half of those have received their unemployment benefits. So this has many still asking that question. Where's my check? Employment expert Michelle Evermore is here with us now to help with that answer. Welcome back to the show here. What is the answer to why some people still haven't gotten the unemployment benefits? Thank you for having me on. Um, so the reality is that administrative funding for unemployment insurance is lower now, was lower in 2020 than it was 20 years ago. So these states entered the recession with fewer staff than they had 20 years ago. Wow. And that's not accounting for inflation or population growth. In the mean, meantime, they've been processing cl initial claims of 3.3 million in a week, 6.6 .6 million in two weeks in a row, over 5 million. Last week, 
initial claims were lower than they had been throughout the course of the whole recession, and they still processed over 2 million new claims. Um, by way of comparison, the highest number of initial claims in history was 695,000 in October of 1982. So they're processing a thousand times more claims per week than the highest point in history. Uh, processing more than ever, and we have fewer folks doing the processing than 20 years ago. So uh, if you haven't received your check, what can you do at this point? Um, so the best the best way to apply for unemployment insurance is to use the online system. So if you've used the online system, check back through that same portal that you use to log on. And it's very important that once you start applying for an unemployment insurance benefit, you keep your password somewhere safe. Getting your password reset is really difficult. All right, Michelle Evermore, this is really, really good information. We hope you'll keep coming back and keeping us informed. But thank you so much. Good to see you. Thank you. Time now for the latest in our week-long series on the young minds and hearts making big changes in this country. A leader in the Black Lives Matter movement tells us what spurred her to activism at a very young age. Hi, everyone. My name is Nepal Kiazolu. I'm 20 years old, and I'm the president of Black Lives Matter Greater New York, and I am from Brooklyn, New York. I became an activist at the age of 12 years old. And my push into activism was Trayvon Martin's murder. At the time, I couldn't fully articulate how I felt, but I knew that I was angry. I came up with this idea to hold this silent protest at my school. And I was written up for suspension, didn't care. The only ally I had at the time was my math teacher. She risked her job having her hoodie on in solidarity with me. The principal sent me home to prepare my case for him. Came back the next day with all my documents. By the time we got out, when we went to the cafeteria, literally every single student in there had their hoodies on with the same exact message. And that's what really made me become an activist and organizer. And I haven't stopped since. And I committed to the movement at 13 years old. I made the decision to go to Charlottesville at 17 years old. The community of Charlottesville, especially the black community, needed bodies on the line there. It was a very intense situation. Like I was spit on, assaulted by a white terrorist. It was just one of the most deplorable things that I have seen in my life. Outside of the negative account encounters I had in Charlottesville, it definitely opened my eyes to how far we have not come with race relations in America because America likes to portray itself as this post-racial utopia. Charlottesville was the perfect modern day example to prove otherwise. When I saw the video to George Floyd, Honestly, I, I vomited. It was so inhumane to watch that. When I went to the site where he was murdered in front of Cup Foods in Minnesota, I literally just cried because I could just feel his spirit there. I had to look outside of myself as a leader and organizer. When I say no justice, no peace, I mean that. I absolutely do mean that. There will not be any peace in this country until black people are afforded their human rights like we're not fighting for anything that's out of this world my predecessors that were activists and organizers gave up their lives for the cause so who am i not to every time i know i'm about to go into a high-risk situation i just remind myself of that that this cause is greater than me i am just 20 years old all right now to the exciting news for those who have been eagerly awaiting a great american pastime shopping ABC Business Correspondent Deirdre Poulton is here. And we are talking about, Deirdre, a triumphant return to New York. This is a New York institution. Open again. 
That is right, TJ. So after approximately 100 days in lockdown, the doors of the iconic Bloomingdale's 59th Street store are open and the staff is like a lot of New Yorkers, so enthusiastic, but with a mix of caution and a desire for normalcy. In its almost 150-year history, this New York institution had never been closed before, for any reason, for 14 weeks straight. In March, New York City was locked down, hit hard, as the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. In-store shopping was one of numerous types of businesses put on halt. This week, that changes. This 850,000 square foot or 15 football field, nine level five restaurant shopping paradise is back. Dorothy Kiley is eager to welcome back her staff and the shoppers. The heartbeat, this building alone and empty has not been Bloomingdale's to me. The past few days, as we're welcoming the team back, ba-boom, ba-boom, the heartbeat starts to come back. And that is absolutely what our customers and clients have been talking about. In reopening, Ms. Kylie and her staff have a lot of responsibility. We're following all of the citywide and state guidelines for safety, and that does include all of the, the facial covering as well as, as um, social distancing. Health guidelines will change how customers buy some products. Makeup is, is definitely was the hardest. We're not going to be putting on any of that kind of more intimate try-on touch and makeover. That, that is not for this moment. We really just stare that down with the lens of safety and health. Not all customers are on the same page. I just feel like I've, I've done so much in the last three months that I just do not want to blow it now. You know, I want to still take the precautions necessary and move from there. We've been cooped up for so long, like everybody in the city has really needed this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that just moving forward, as long as everyone's taking their precautions, like we have to do what we can. We can't continue to live our lives in fear. So far, that attitude is showing up in what's selling. This isn't about what was happening when people were in their sweats and their comfy clothes. This is, you know, summer, so the season for our opening, in, today is the first day of summer. Right. And, and, uh, and I think that uh, that people are craving to enjoy a piece of that. And I think that, uh, especially in the Northeast, is a really good advantage that we have at this point uh, with this beautiful weather. Retail expert Heath Herzog says technology has changed everything. There's not too much you want to get in person, that you have to get in person, that you can't get online. So unless they feel safe about shopping, I doubt that retailers are going to see the influx of people coming into those stores. Either way, businesses opening their doors will offer a jolt of energy to what had become an eerily quiet city. By the way, Bloomingdale's is still offering curbside pickup for those who don't want to go into the store. Then there's video shopping and in-person shopping services that are available by appointment. TJ? Okay, so far so good. It has yeah. been open for a couple of days. How's it been going? So far, there's two categories that are selling really well. So luxury skincare and home goods. I have to mention this as well, TJ, for fans of Bloomingdale's frozen yogurt, believe it or not, there is a cult following. There is a food truck now on 3rd Avenue for the truly dedicated. So again, if you want the frozen treat, you don't want to be inside. Bloomingdale's has a solution, okay. TJ. You got luxury skincare and frozen yogurt all in there. <laughs> that, was, that was impressive, Deirdre. Very impressive. Thank you so much. Uh, oh, I needed that, Dr. Ashton. Same. Um, final thoughts on what we're seeing coronavirus right about now is we're seeing somewhat of a shift. Summertime, people seem to be over it. And now people seem to be starting to think about, you know what? 
I deserve a break. Yeah. I deserve to go out and have a good and time. And I think it's really an incredible social experiment we're all living through in real time here. It's about how our behaviors affect the health and lives of others. So what is our responsibility to others? You know, in medicine, if, if you're my patient and I say, you know what, TJ, I'd like you to stop smoking, that decision, that autonomy affects you as long as you're not smoking around me. Yeah. Um, this is different. This, I'm suggesting you to take certain steps, and not only is it to protect you, but it's to protect everyone around you and our livelihood and how we function in this country. And I'm concerned with what I'm seeing. So, um, you know, we, I think we all need to think about that a lot, not just today, but in the days, weeks, and months ahead. That takes a shift in our thinking and the way we have lived yeah. for so long. And I know you're disturbed by a lot of those videos we're seeing, people partying yeah. at the bar. At a, it's not just that they're out. They seem to be out and don't even think about. Yeah. And listen, distancing. our autonomy, that's the ethical principle that drives part of our decisions in medicine. That's important. But as we heard from the governor of New York, it's not about we. It's not about me. It's about we. We've got to get that through our minds now or we're in a lot of trouble. All right, Dr. Ashton, thank you as always. Don't show up. Don't come out. In honor of Pride Month, we are sharing ways everybody can be an ally to the LGBTQ plus community. And today we have a special guest with us. A mother of three dedicates her time to show folks they are loved and supported. Everybody, please welcome Tiffany Herbert. Tiffany, hello. I'm told, though, I should call you Mama Herbert. Is that more appropriate? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a great nickname my uh, kids' friends gave me back when they were in high school. Well, I'm going to use it today, Mama Herbert. And, and you've been doing this now with uh, free mom hugs. That sounds great right about now. But explain your involvement and exactly what you guys do. Um, I found Free Mom Hugs um, a few years ago um, after my own amazing and empowering experience when my own daughter um, had the courage to come out to my husband and I when she was in college. And I discovered the power of a hug. Um, sadly, she was a few hours away and she came out to us over Skype. And so my husband and I looked at each other and we said, close your computer and drive home. And so as soon as she got home, we just wrapped her up in a hug. And I think that hug lasted all day. And um, then we thanked her for having the courage to share that part of herself with us. And I recognize that not everyone has that kind of love and support around them. And I was so grateful when I found the organization that Sarah Cunningham started. Um, and the whole purpose of that is to share that love that our daughter had in that moment with others uh, in the LGBTQIA plus community that may not get that at home. And so um, I just want to share that love with everyone. And unfortunately, right now with the pandemic, we can't actually physically hug right now, which is really hard because I'm that kind of person. Uh, so we're having to find unique and different ways to share that. And Mama Herbert, if that's not enough, you have also been providing personal protective equipment. You have personally, I think, I see right, sewn 1,400 masks on your own. Yes. That's how, Well, I guess the question is, how do you find time? But that's... Uh, that's pretty rewarding work, I imagine, as well. It is. Uh, I'm with an organization called GetPPE.org, and we have an amazing team of people. So this is deeply personal for me, as uh, my aforementioned daughter um, actually contracted COVID at the very beginning of the wow. pandemic. Wow. And uh, with that experience, she got incredibly ill, managed to stay out of the hospital. But 
Um, and my husband is actually a, a frontline healthcare worker. He's a physician that staffs rural emergency rooms uh, in uh, uh, Iowa. And so he flies out there, staffs the emergency rooms, and then flies home, has to get a COVID test. And so I want to help protect healthcare workers. And so we get uh, financial contributions, donations of PPE, and then work with SOAS all across the country to find them locations to send their masks. And so I sew like crazy, and I work with the facilities directly to help get them the PPE they need with an amazing team. I am just one spoke in this giant wheel all working together to do it. Well, that is a big wheel, and you're a big spoke, a big part of that. Mama Herbert, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you you so much. Good to talk to you. And that's our program for today. I'm TJ Holmes. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.